You may be seated. And when you are, open your Bibles to the epistle of James. We are in the last chapter, creeping our way to the end. Today we are in the second portion of James chapter 5. Uh, we, our sermon text will be James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. But what I'd like to do, as always, is start in the portion just before so that we get the immediate context of our verses. So we are going to read James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. This is God's holy and inspired word. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's pray. Lord, we would ask that you would help us as we contemplate your word before us. Lord, we um, will think about the context of this passage, the context of this book historically. Uh, But Lord, we need your guidance uh, for today. And so we pray that um, as we talk about harvests, and we talk about wages being held back, and we talk about farmers, we talk about landowners and all these kinds of things, uh, that you would help us by the power of the Spirit to apply what you are saying through your servant James in our own lives. Uh, Lord, 
Would you help us today? Would you speak to us? Would you give us everything we need? Um, Encouragement if it's needed. Rebuke if it's needed. uh, Teaching if it's needed. Lord, would you help us? Would you speak to us? Would you mold us and shape us by your word? We'd ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory's sake. Amen. Have you heard of Fran Salak? I had never heard of this guy. You've got to look him up. If you could remember that name, look him up on Wikipedia or YouTube. Uh, They refer to this guy as as the luckiest unlucky person who has ever lived Uh, In 1962, Fran was riding on a train through a canyon, and that train flew off the tracks, and it crashed into a river below. And an unknown person pulled Fran from the water to safety while 17 other passengers drowned. And the next year, during his first and only plane ride, while in the air, the engines failed, and the door gave way. Fran was sucked out of the cockpit. The plane crashed into a mountain. Fran landed in a haystack. I'm telling you, he's on Wikipedia. You can look this up. And the next year during um, oh, we, the, that plane it crashed, 19 people died. Three years later after that, he was... Uh, riding in a bus that skidded off the road and fell into the river, drowning four persons. Fran was the only one able to swim to safety. In 1970, Fran's car caught on fire while he was driving, and he jumped out of it, and the gas tank exploded. Three years, don't ever get in a car with this guy. Three years later, he was in another car fire where his hair was completely singed off, but otherwise He was fine. In 1995, he was struck by a bus but sustained only minor injuries. He's got one more for you. In 1996, Fran eluded a head-on collision with a United Nations truck on a mountain curve. He he went through the guardrail, wasn't wearing his seatbelt, so he was ejected from the car in the impact. He flew into the trees and was able to hold on while his car fell 300 feet and exploded at the bottom of the ravine. He survived. (laughs) You got to look this guy up because there's there's one more that's going to really twist it for you. Uh, Fran's life was unique. Thankfully. Uh, But life is filled with twists and turns for all of us. Most of us will find ourselves having to deal with very difficult situations from time to time. Uh, We want things to be simple, right? We want things to be straightforward and we want things to be easy. But sometimes God has other plans. Sometimes life is very difficult. How should we act? How should we respond? In this passage, James urges the church to walk through trials with honesty and with integrity. You can see that in verse 12, right? Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Uh, But you'll also notice in verse 7 that he wants believers to be patient That, in fact, is the focus of the text, patience. 
But what should patience look like? James doesn't leave you wondering. Instead, he gives you several examples of what your patience should look like. He starts by saying that you should be patient like a farmer. You learn that you should wait patiently in understanding. That's our first heading. Wait patiently in understanding. As we begin, I want to talk about two things as a foundation for our thinking. The first is I want to talk about patience itself. When, when we talk about patience in this text, we're not talking about ordinary patience. The Christian life is a supernatural life. That's crucial to understand, and, and it's humbling. It should be humbling Left to yourself, you can't be patient the way that the Bible tells you to be patient. If you could, patience wouldn't be a fruit of the Spirit. It would be a fruit of our personality or, or our upbringing or maybe the power of our will. When we're talking about patience here, we're talking about patience that God works in us by the Holy Spirit. We're talking about a believer bearing the fruit of patience. Second, I want you to remember the context of this passage. What was James talking about in the first six verses? He's been talking about rich, unbelieving landowners who were abusing their workers. Do you remember? They were hoarding their wealth. They were uh, swindling and stealing from the poor in order to enrich themselves and to live in luxury. They were hiring people to work in their fields, and then they were refusing to pay them for their work. And this was happening to people in James's congregations. His people were, at this point, struggling to put food on the table. They were struggling to provide for themselves and their families. How should they respond? How should they walk through a, a trial like this, a circumstance like this? This is what James is addressing in verse 4. He told his congregations that the Lord of hosts, that is the Lord of heaven's armies, is aware of the injustice and that he hears their cries for help. And in verse 7, he writes, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. James is telling the church to wait, not to become overly zealous, not to take things into their own hands. He doesn't want his people to turn to violence or to do something criminal in response to their wages being withheld. The verb that James uses here for patience calls believers under affliction to persevere and to not give up. They can wait patiently because they have assurance that the Lord hears their cries and that he will bring justice. God will bring complete justice in his time. And James has just threatened the wicked uh, with God's opposition on the day of judgment, uh, that day of judgment that Christ's return ushers in. And James continues by giving an analogy that would have resonated deeply with his people, many of whom were clearly farmers. 
In verse 7, he writes, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, be pati- being patient for it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. In the Mediterranean, early rains normally arrived between mid-October and mid-November, and then the late rains came in March and April. So the farmers planted their harvest in fall, and then they did the harvesting itself in spring. The farmer can't do anything to force God's hand in sending in the sending of rain or in the growth process. Likewise, you can't compel or force God to act according to your timetable. You must wait upon him. Nor can you change the growth process God uses to shape you into the image of Christ. Instead, like the farmer, you must exercise patience and wait upon the Lord. I said that the farmers planted in fall and then they harvested in spring, but they couldn't just sit around idle, right? They must weed and care for the soil. They must fertilize and do whatever they can to bring about the best possible crop. Likewise, believers must weed out sin and care for their souls. James says, be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James says, establish your hearts or or strengthen your hearts. This is a call to stand firm and to wait on the Lord, uh, to have a fixed heart, dependent upon him. That same verb appears in Luke 9.51, where scripture says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. You remember that in Isaiah, it says he set his face like a flint. You remember that language? It's an old King James language, right? He set his face to go there. He was absolutely determined to do what God had called him to do. Likewise, fix your heart to trust the Lord, even when the Lord's timing seems completely questionable. Even when it's hard to see how your circumstances could possibly be working for good. Christians should conduct themselves this way because the coming of the Lord is at hand. His coming is near. The verb that James uses implies that the coming of the Lord already is near because it has, over time, drawn near. We are in the last days. Are you ready to meet the Lord face to face. Do you belong to him? Do you have a sense, a sense of his nearness? Or does God seem far off somewhere? You don't know where he is, but he's not near. Christians can be guilty sometimes of acting as if the Lord remains far off 
Perhaps in their frustration, some in James's congregations were taking their frustrations out on fellow believers. Maybe they were grumbling and complaining as they thought of how easy uh, the fellow believers in the church seemed uh, to have it. Uh, Frustrated by their own circumstances, maybe they had developed a critical and judgmental spirit about other believers around them. In verse 9, James says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The judge, the one who will bring justice, the one who has all power and authority, has heard your cries, and he is near, as close as standing at the door. James wants the church to understand this. He wants you to understand and to wait patiently in obedience. That's our second heading. Wait patiently in obedience. James continues by pointing his congregations to the Old Testament prophets as examples of believers who both suffered and waited patiently on the Lord. In verse 10, James says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. What can you learn from the example of the prophets? You'll remember that as prophets sought to be faithful to the Lord, they often suffered injustice at the hand of others. And yet they continued to be faithful and seek the glory of God in what they said and in what they did. They spoke in the name of the Lord. And they denounced injustice. And they carried God's message to the lost world around them, even if it meant that they were going to suffer. And as you look at the lives of the prophets, you see how the Lord cares for them through their suffering. Do you remember Elijah's interaction with King Ahab in First King, Kings Ahab was, of course, an evil king, and the Lord sent Elijah to pronounce judgment upon him. And Elijah was bold, and he was faithful. He carried God's message to Ahab and told him that his kingdom was going to suffer a drought for three and a half years. Now, this drought was going to devastate Ahab's kingdom. And, of course, Ahab wasn't happy. What happens next? The Lord tells Elijah to hide. Right? He tells Elijah to hide. Elijah was faithful. He was in God's will, but he still had to suffer through the drought along with everybody else. And not only that, he also had the added pressure of being in hiding. He was completely dependent upon God throughout that entire time for his food and water. And God didn't give him a month or a week's worth of food and water. No, God gave him a daily portion. That's it. Elijah learned dependence. 
He learned patience. Elijah waited on the Lord for three and a half years. God cared for Elijah through the drought, and later, you remember, God gives Elijah victory over the priests of Baal. What about Jeremiah? Do you remember when he was put down into that cistern? What happened? God sent his prophets to Judah, and through them, God told Judah that the only, that they would not escape the judgment coming to them by the Babylonians, but the only way that they were going to survive is if they surrendered. It's kind of like salvation. The only way to survive God's judgment is through surrender. But the king of Judah and his counselors would not hear it. And toward the end of the siege, the Babylonians had Jerusalem surrounded. Uh, The people were trapped behind the city walls, and they were starting to run out of food and water. And the Lord called Jeremiah to preach in the streets of Jerusalem, and Jeremiah was faithful. He was carrying God's word to the people. He told them that the only way to survive was to surrender to the Babylonians. And this came to the attention of the king. And the king was told, listen, Jeremiah's preaching is not good for the morale of the people, and it's certainly not good for the morale of the soldiers. So the king gave his advisors authority over Jeremiah to do whatever they pleased with him. Now they wanted uh, Jeremiah to be silent. They wanted him dead. They wanted him gone. So they threw Jeremiah in an abandoned water cistern and he sank in the cold mud and was left to die alone. But Jeremiah was far from alone. The Lord of hosts hears the cries of his people. We learn that in verse 4 of this chapter. He sees the injustice that they face. He knows firsthand how painful life can be in this fallen world. God hears prayer. He hears the cries of his people for deliverance. God heard Jeremiah's prayer, and as he waited and waited and waited in that cold, dark cistern. God was on the move. He raised up Ebed-Melech, the Cushite, and 30 other men to rescue Jeremiah and to lift him out of the pit. But Jeremiah suffered through hard providence. But God protected him throughout the entire siege of Jerusalem, even though At times, it looked as though the prophet was going to be killed. God protects his people. The same was true for prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel. They were faithful men, and yet they faced difficult providences throughout their lives. The prophets show that obedience doesn't guarantee life is going to be full of ease and pleasure. The Lord Jesus was the true prophet, the one that the other prophets typified. And where did the Lord's 
obedience lead him? To the cross. Philippians 2 says that Jesus was obedient, obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. His obedience led him to die for sin, for the sins of his people. Life can be very difficult at times, challenging, painful. Where are you going to go when it feels like you are going through a drought? When it feels like you've been cast into a cistern and left all alone? Sometimes it's hard when you find out that you're not in charge. It's hard not knowing how the future is going to play out. It puts you in a very uncomfortable place. A place where you realize just how little control you really have. A place where you must walk in faith, recognize your dependence upon God, and beg Him to empower you with patience that you need to walk with Him faithfully. James wants the church to learn from the example of the prophets. And as he continues, he points his readers to the steadfastness of Job and the blessing that he received through his steadfast endurance. And you learn that you should wait patiently in expectation. That's our third heading. Wait patiently in expectation. As James addresses the topic of patience, you've seen that he's pointed to the farmer and to the prophets as examples we can learn from. Now he points to Job. In verse 11, he writes, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James says that we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Remaining steadfast is related to patience, but it's a little different. The Greek word that's rendered into English here as steadfastness carries the idea of staying power or constancy. This is the kind of patience that stays put and stands fast when what you'd really like to do is run away. It's a patient endurance. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast through hard trials. We marvel. And that's because we witness what happens through their suffering. Through their troubles, they learn to trust and draw near to the Lord. They learn deep communion and they mature spiritually. James says, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You know his story. Job is a man that prospered in every way. He was a man of God. Scripture says that he was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned from evil. 
And Job had a beautiful family, didn't he? He was happily married. He had 10 children, seven boys, and three girls. Job had a thriving business. His business was doing well. He had dozens of employees, and he had hundreds, uh, even thousands of sheep and oxen and donkeys. He was blessed. And in Job chapter 2, the Lord gives us a peek into the spiritual dimensions And we witness an incredible conversation between God and the fallen angel, Satan. Satan suggests that no one serves God out of affection, but only for what he or she can get from him. And this sets the stage for what happens next. God allows Satan to take everything from Job except for his life. And then we see Satan go immediately to work. Uh, One by one, Job loses everything that he has. One of his employees comes and tells him that his his oxen and his donkeys have been stolen and that the servants were all killed. And then another messenger comes and tells him that the shepherds and all his sheep have been killed as well. And then a third messenger arrives with news that the Chaldeans have stolen all of his camels and murdered all of the servants who were tending to them. But his hardship uh, was far from over uh, while Job was still learning that he had lost all of his wealth, a fourth messenger arrived uh, telling him that all 10 of his children were killed when a building they were in uh, collapsed on them. How did Job respond? Scripture says that he arose and tore his robe and that he shaved his head and that he fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job's actions proved Satan wrong. Job loved the Lord. And if you know how the story progresses, then you know Satan's next step was attacking Job's health. He was afflicted with sores from head to toe. And as he languished, Job's wife asked him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? The Bible says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And as Job's story continues, his friends arrive and falsely accuse him of being cursed by God because he was a sinner and a hypocrite. But Job maintained his innocence But he was beginning to struggle from the grief and the weariness. Satan predicted that Job would grow impatient with God and abandon his faith. But he was wrong. He remained steadfast. 
And in the end, God speaks to Job directly. He helps him. He matures him. He restores his health and his wealth. And James doesn't leave his readers ignorant about God's purpose for Job's life. He says that what happened to Job occurred so that we would see God's grace. In verse 11, James writes, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. What's the point? Be patient. Remain steadfast. God is going to shower his mercy and compassion on you as well. God will provide you with everything that you truly need. That's why in verse 12, James counsels, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. James isn't saying that believers can't take lawful oaths and vows. After all, the Lord by nature is a covenant-making God, and he himself makes oaths. The author of Hebrews reminds us that God also bound himself with an oath so so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. That's from Hebrews 6.17. If that's the case, then what is James referring to here about oaths? Well, that last word in verse 12, you see that last word, it's condemnation there in the ESV. It could be rendered as judgment, as in in a court case. Remember the context of our passage. James is writing to his congregations and some of his members have already been swindled out of their wages by rich landowners. He doesn't want his people to become desperate and make agreements that they're unable to keep. That's often how the rich take advantage of the poor. For instance, a crooked landowner might offer one of James' desperate members a contract to harvest his field with a deadline he knows is impossible to keep. And when the deadline is missed, the landowner can legally withhold his wages and win the judgment in court. Christians are called to keep their word We're called to be people of honesty and integrity. Our yes means yes, and our no means no. Don't make commitments you're unable to keep. But this can be extremely difficult when you are truly feeling desperate, impatient, James knows that the members of his congregations are feeling this way. They are hurting. They want justice. So James points them to the Lord Jesus, and he says, be patient. Be patient like a farmer who must wait upon the seasons and yet remains responsible to do everything in his power to produce an abundant crop. God controls the timing. 
Be patient like one of the Old Testament prophets who, despite adversity, continued to be faithful and seek the glory of God in what they said and what they did. Be patient like Job who endured through suffering and never abandoned his faith and his love for the Lord. The Lord hears your cries. Ask him to give you strength and wait upon the Lord for deliverance. Be patient. His coming is at hand. Amen. Let's pray.